So how do you do these interviews, actually? Because I was told by Elisa that I don't need to prepare for anything, so I hope this is true. <laughs> Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. I've got another great episode from ACES 2022 for you. Uh, we spoke with Dr. Ulf Brunbauer, who's a professor at the University of Regensburg and the director of the Leibniz Institute for East and Southeast European Studies in Regensburg. We had a conversation about his work generally on migration and labor in the Balkans, sort of long trajectory placing these regions in a global context. And Dr. Brunbauer himself even says in this interview that the Balkans is one of the more globalized regions in the world, which goes against some of our stereotypical ways of looking at an oft misunderstood region. So another great episode, and I hope you all continue to enjoy. Okay. Okay. So I think if my mom is post volume. Yes. 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 Okay. That's wow. a good way. <laughs> Either you don't know my mom. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, Dr. Brunvar, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invite. So to just get things started, would you mind telling our guests a little bit about yourself, how you come to ACES, what your research is, and how you came by it? Okay, so why come to ACES? I think I stopped counting, but I think I started going to ACES early 2000s, just after finishing my, my PhD. And it was really a revelation for me coming from uh, then, still, uh, then Austria, where I was uh, based and also doing my PhD, and then this whole new world of uh, American, international, East European studies opening, opening up. There's nothing similar in Europe, uh, East European, Southeast European, Eurasian studies and ever since then i've been a really big fan of this of conventional although the hotels are awful and you don't see the daylight for four days but that's uh, the sacrifice that you have to make about myself i am uh, currently director of one of the largest research institutes in east european studies in germany which is the leibniz institute for east and southeast european studies in regensburg based in regensburg that's an independent research outfit it's not part of the university of regensburg but we closely cooperate with the university of Regensburg, it has a multidisciplinary profile doing economics, political science, and history. And history is also the field where I, if I find time to do research, I am doing my, my research. And I'm a trained historian with a PhD in basically the Southeast European history. And also my postdoc was, was in uh, Southeast European history, the habilitation, as we call it, in uh, Germany. And most of my research revolves around the social history of the Balkans since the 19th century. First, focusing on Bulgaria or what would be Bulgaria, because I, I studied a period, it's a transition period from late Ottoman rule to the national state. And after spending quite some time with Bulgarian matters and then doing also a little bit of research about Macedonia, I moved to a more broader regional perspective. I wrote a book about emigration from the Balkans since the mid 19th century. Uh, until basically into the 1950s. I wrote this story where most of my empirical examples actually come from the former Yugoslavia, which was just basically conditioned by the source base. And so for the last couple of years, my geographic focus moved from what you could call the Eastern Balkans, Bulgaria, to the former Yugoslavia, doing a lot of uh, research on Croatia, based on Croatian 
creation materials. But broadly speaking, I'm interested in, um, in questions of social change and in how social structures and the social practices interact, especially in times of politically induced transformation. So, for example, like from Ottoman period, Ottoman rule to uh, nation state rule, or this migration book has also strong emphasis on questions of political, of the politics of emigration and how they changed uh, in the post-imperial context. And my last book was an economic history of transformation from socialism to however you would call what came after, what sort of some forms or different forms of market capitalism based on the example of shipbuilding. Yeah, so kind of a variety of interests, but they come down to questions of social change and how the, the ordinary people are not only affected by these very often really big time changes, but also renegotiate and reappropriate these changes to so find their own ways to execute whatever their own individual agendas are within the constraints of uh, social structures or political circumstances. Okay, and how does shipbuilding fit into that? Well, shipbuilding uh, developed kind of an interest. Maybe it started with some childhood memories. I was born in 1970 in Austria. And uh, now reflecting on where my interest in questions of migration and also shipbuilding come from, I think it is closely related to early childhood vacation experiences, which uh, brought me, I think the first time I was three years old, when my grandparents and my parents took me on their summer holidays in Istria, then from Yugoslavia. And I don't know whether it's still my, it's my own memory or just what my parents then told me and because our own mem- childhood memories are so shaped by the photographs that our parents took. But I remember that we passed by the, a big shipyard in Pula. And as a small child, I just could not imagine how these things produced out of metal could possibly swim. So that was, I think, my first impression of, of, of shipbuilding. And then 40 years later, it became, became an academic obsession. And also my kind of the first context to migration from the Balkans were also related to these to this trips. You, you obviously saw the Gastarbeiters uh, taking, Yugoslav Gastarbeiters taking the same routes back for the, for the summer holidays, uh, the place where I grew up, Linz, which is an industrial town in, in Austria, was of course also heavily affected by Gastarbeiter immigration from, from Southeast Europe. So maybe there, there's some uh, early childhood experiences that were formative for my academic interests many, many years later. You said a tale of two shipyards. Is one Istria and the other, whereabouts is that? In uh, Gdansk, in, in Poland. So yeah, indeed, it's a, compar- it's a comparative uh, project. It's also a, a collaborative project. It's a book that has uh, six authors, and we wrote it really as a collective. So it's not an edited volume. It's really a monograph. It's one book. And on the title page of the book, we also, we don't figure with our names, also because I think the publisher could not possibly put all of them on the, on the title page, but as the shipyard collective. And also indicating that this is really collective uh, work where all authors uh, contributed and you could not say which chapter was written by which author because we all, we all were of each individual chapter's co-author. So it was also an experiment. And uh, the idea was comparing two East Central European experiences in 
the same industry. Uh, so reducing on the one hand, reducing certain factors that would make transition pathways different. So for example, First, the technology was the same in both technological challenges, not very, very the same in both, in both cases. But then highlighting also the importance of the specific political context, uh, which obviously was very different in late Yugoslavia and late Poland, and then in post-communist Poland and post-communist Croatia, which first years of its existence had to fight a war, which obviously was not very inducive for economic reform. And also the symbolic place of shipbuilding being different is the economic place of shipbuilding in this region. So there's a couple of uh, differentiating factors. But uh, at the end, I think what, what we managed to show is first that if you think about transformation, so this long and very complex process of the dissolution of communist rule and, and the state socialist economy and building of something new, we have to take a long-term perspective. So it's a process that started in the early 1970s. and at least that's our claim, came to an end. I mean, this process has never come to an end. Of course, history does not end. But in a way, it ended with the accession to the European Union. And looking at a specific and to some degree very, very idiosyncratic industry like shipbuilding, you also do see a lot of continuities across the political change in terms of uh, how government subsidized this industry, for example, in terms of economic policy making, also in terms of which arguments directors, managers used in order to ask government for, for support. And it's really only the entering into the European Union that really brings a totally new macroeconomic framework. I think we want to try to show that the EU membership is really a historical cesura, which very often is underappreciated, at least in, in Western Europe, how salient it is to become member of the European Union. And so we in a way argue that post-socialism came to an end with uh, EU membership, and then something new emerges, which, of course, is also informed by these formal practices, but it is a very different framework. I, th I think it's interesting how much you like to place these very localized things that often get put in a box of kind of, this is a Balkan thing, and it's over there, in these larger sort of global contexts, and with migration in particular. I mean, both of these uh, books, both, both the Shipyard book and the Migration book are about globalization in a way, because uh, obviously for, for, the, for the Balkans, migration in the Balkans experienced massive overseas immigration since the late, since the 1890s, basically, or 1880s, 1890s, depending on, on place, until the outbreak of World War I. So for some years, Balkans and Eastern Europe were the most important sending regions of immigrants to the U.S., and this was a major channel and mechanism to integrate these societies into, in, into global economy. So I often kind of make the argument that uh, if we want to understand what was salient to a small village in the Dalmatian hinterland, you don't need to look into the imperial policies in Vienna or Budapest, the political centers for this region, but you need to understand the business cycles of American steel and mining because migration networks were already so dense and also Back, going back and forth, money being sent back. So there are a lot of things that we can observe today, actually. We can already observe in terms of transnational linkages in, in this period, late 19th and early 20th century. And shipbuilding as well. It's a very global industry. So the, these case studies, especially the Yugoslav Croatian case study, produced only for export. So it's also one of, one of our main, major interests in this book was actually how did globalization shape the concrete forms transformation took and uh, to look into 
or to the dialectics of of globalization when globalization is always made it's made locally it's nothing that falls from from the sky the concrete actors create globalization and it and it has very different manifestations at each and every locale so i think this is something we really also need to to stress that uh, the changes that uh, eastern europe has been seeing since the 1970s they were not only but to a large degree also related to changes in the global economic landscape. The oil crisis of the 1970s, uh, changes in, in, in the ways that business are financed, interest rates in the US, this all had immediate effect on East European economies, which were not very well suited to, in a way, mitigate these external forces. So, but that's one of the arguments that, that, uh, that we make. That globalization is really crucial for the region. But we have to really establish for each and every context how these linkages played out. It's not globalization did not lead to convergence. To some degree, actually, it increased divergence because there's an anthropologist once said, Anna Lodenhardt Singh, who studied the globalization, but on the example mainly of, of Southeast Asia, but she says that how we run depends in which shoes we run. And this is exactly what we tried to show. What is the local context and how does it adapt, adopt, appropriate, or maybe even challenge or subvert global factors, global pressures, external external factors about which they had no control per se. But the ways how they change the local landscape is always very dependent on the very specific local histories and institutional setups. That's that's a, an interesting metaphor, provocative, evocative. I also I hope it's not lost on our listeners that while we're talking about immigration from Central and Eastern Europe to the United States, we are recording this in Chicago, a city heavily influenced by that. So something that I, I always think about, or that I have been thinking about very recently, as I was in Central Europe this summer and had some conversations with people who had family members who had gone to the United States at some, you know, around this time, turn of the 19th, 20th century, and then had come back. And they always have a story about like one aunt or uncle who stayed. And I feel like most American stories are the story of that one aunt or uncle, but then back in Europe, it's, oh, we don't know what happened to them. And there's that sort of lost linkage between the two. So I would guess just maybe for a more, you know, an English speaking American audience, how that sort of cycle of immigration isn't quite the permanent, like uprooting and then moving to the U.S. and then staying there forever that it's often presented as. No, I mean, that's, a, that's a good point. And first of all, what, at least concerning the, 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 the Balkan part of the story. So the migration patterns are pretty different also between East Central Europe and, and Balkans. And what, is really very specific and quite interesting for the Balkan cases, very high rates of return. It's very difficult to calculate because obviously there's no, really no, not, not a very exact, uh, I mean, compared to immigration records, there's much less exact records for then return, return migration. We only have estimates, but probably half of, for example, or maybe more than half of uh, immigrants from Croatia. And this is, we are talking really about this. A substantial number of people that came to the U.S. before World War One returned. Some of them might then re-emigrate, but there's significant return return migration, which to some degree, as long as it was possible, also facilitated new migration. So you have these stories from the late 19th century, but also from the interwar period when migra- immigration to the U.S. became ever more difficult. So, but the, the Americanets is a very powerful figure. The Americanets, those people coming back. 
permanently or temporarily showing off. Of course, being in a situation to purchase goods that a local population with local salaries based on the local economy would not be able. And then stimulating this sort of prestige or status emigration. You had to go to America if you want to achieve the same standard of living. But I mean, over generations, these links might become weaker also because of maybe we don't we really need to stress also the political ruptures that the region also experienced, especially within the, the establishment of communist regimes, which initially at least were very hostile, not only to emigration per se, but also to maintaining contacts between those who stayed back and uh, their relatives in, in America. This changed over, over time, especially in the case of former Yugoslavia. But um, and certainly, and then when you have the American story of, uh, of uh, this idea that immigrants should assimilate. So there are a lot of factors also working against maintaining over generations these transnational linkages. But I would still say that there are really very lively memories of it. Maybe people cannot really exactly pinpoint who of their distant relatives uh, moved to, to America somewhere else. But I think it's hard to find a family in, in, in the Balkans that doesn't have a migration story and where family networks are spread across the world. And which makes the, the region very, very global. I mean, sometimes I have the, the, the impression that Balkans are more global than other parts of Europe and, and migration is certainly part of the story. Do you see that pattern continuing today? Uh, very much so. So uh, migration story is one of which you can summarize of not very much new under the sun. So the patterns that are uh, recurrent. I mean, the interesting thing about when you study migration, the history of migration, is that you, you get the feeling that uh, each and every generation thinks to live in a time of unprecedented migration in terms of numbers, for example, which is just not true. I mean, well, you could probably argue that in the last couple of years, globally speaking, the, the number of uh, migrants, uh, however you would count them, but the share of migrants is increasing, but still the most human beings don't move, I mean, don't move abroad. So it's, uh, it's really actually quite, 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 quite small share of, of, of humankind that uh, can be defined as migrants. So it's like four to six percent. And that has been pretty stable over the last centuries, probably, which also indicates that migration maybe is I mean, it's an important social process, but I think it is uh, attributed even more political meaning than it actually has in terms of a social process, because obviously my migration challenges some of the basic premises on which the idea of, uh, of modern sovereignty is built on, and modern states typically don't want people to move across borders. It creates all kinds of problems, and you, you cannot tax, you cannot school, you cannot force into an army people who leave. So there's a certain problem concern on the side of the state. But, but generally, a lot of things remain pretty, pretty similar. For example, transnational engagements. Obviously, the technologies of transnational engagement are, are very different today. Travel is much cheaper and easier. But from a more sort of abstract or, or theoretical or general point of view, Migrants a century ago, in the late 19th century, lived in very, lived very similar transnational lives. Obviously not sending, I don't know, WhatsApp messages, but regularly sending letters and not just asking how their relatives are doing, but really also 
showcasing that they remain part of uh, the, the the families, part of the communities that they have left. Also because very very often they actually have intended to return, sending money, which was really very important for for the local economies. Something that we nowadays call remittances, but the same processes already being described in the late 19th and early 20th century, or these forms of political engagement from abroad, diaspora politics, if you if you want a long distance nationalism. So I would I would say that probably there are more continuities than ruptures, but I think there are also I mean there's so many things that people can do. Some some things tend not to change so much. And what also doesn't change is that the societies can get very nervous about migration. Maybe last thing, I mean which was one of the of the purposes of, of my of my book. I was not so much interested in what happened to my Balkan immigrants uh, in America mainly and other places where they went to, but I was much more interested in the perspective of what emigration meant for the sending society, in how far the social change, but also political change, was also shaped by, by emigration because uh, migration research has a real, a very heavy bias on the perspective of the immigration. If you if you browse for literature or, or do like an engram uh, search for immigration and emigration, you will see a clear difference in the frequency of immigration compared to to, to immigration. So much much more used, much more debated, which is related obviously to the concerns of governments about immigration, but also to the fact that most of the migration research is done in countries that consider themselves immigration countries. And the immigration story and what immigration actually means for a country that being left by people is much less scrutinized. And that was maybe the, the major intervention that I wanted to do with this book and also showcasing that immigration is important for questions how citizenship is defined, also how nation is defined as immigration. And, uh, and for the Balkans, obviously, immigration is the more salient form of migration and to send more people off than receive immigrants. I don't know how much of a leap this is, but around the early 2010s, there was kind of a flip in what the focus of the narrative was. In, in places in Europe that had not received a lot of immigration, they started to, and the political processes responded pretty pretty harshly to that. Is that related? I mean, it is. So it's a complicated story because to some degree, political rhetoric doesn't really reflect what is going on. Hungary would be very good. Case which is uh, all I mean, many of the East, Central, Southeast European countries, which where governments are very locally anti-immigrant. I mean, some of them, like Hungarian Prime Minister, really using a racist language. But at the same time, you you do see significant immigration. Uh, some of it probably not just tolerated, but even facilitated by, by the government because lack of labor, shortage of workers has become a major drag on economic growth in the region. If you look at the demographic development of some of these countries, I mean, they're, they're already now facing really a scarcity of, uh, of, uh, of skilled uh, workers because there was so much immigration from the region to Western Europe and it's ongoing to a certain degree. But it seems that governments are very wary or, or feel, and probably they're right, that there's no political consensus in um, 
finding ways also how to facilitate immigration, which in one way or the other they, 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 they must do. But we, we also have to, 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 to situate, I mean, I'm really also very angry, also personally, when I hear this language, this anti-immigrant uh, language in countries, which still, having said that there's already quite significant immigration, but compared to Western Europe, of course, the, the levels are really, really very, very comparatively very, very low. And then you hear this racist language, which really, which really makes you sick. But I think we also have to situate this in a larger historic context. And the larger historical context is that this, in quote, quote, in quote, small nations in Eastern and Southeastern Europe, they, they feel a certain sense of ontological insecurity, which is related to the fact that uh, some of them have made historic experience in the 20th century or earlier under imperial rule that the very existence of a nation, of a people, can be under threat. And one of the results of this ontological insecurity is a very strong emphasis on an ethnic definition of the nation, which also, of course, a result of the way how nations were created in an imperial especially Austro-Hungarian or Ottoman context in the 19th century, which is within such a framework of how the nation is defined, it is really very difficult to see how non-co-ethnic immigrants could notionally be integrated and combine this with the huge social and economic transformation of the last 30 years, which created a lot of insecurity, combine it also with uh, substantial out-migration, this gives rise to certainly totally over overblown, but uh, there's a certain fear that immigration really might change the demographic balance in 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 this uh, in these countries. And we should not sympathize with this point of view, but uh, we need to in a way emphasize with it to understand why this kind of language resonates in East and Southeast European societies uh, and not uh, not sort of high-handed, kind of looking down on these uh, places as notoriously racist and, and, and anti-immigrant, and attitudes can also change. But there are certain histories that can explain this, these mm-hmm. attitudes. That it's not an excuse for the racist language or anything, no. but it, it, where it's coming from is you have to understand that to combat it or make any kind of intervention in that process. When think of Bulgaria, which is a country that I've studied a lot, Bulgaria used to have almost 9 million inhabitants by the end of communist rule, so late 1980s. When I went to school, Bulgaria had more people than Austria. The last census in 2021, and its results were just published, uh, showed that Bulgaria has uh, 6.5 million inhabitants. So that's... Um, in peacetime, a pretty much unprecedented decline of population, and it's continuing. And in such a situation, I think you can understand why these uh, languages of also population replacement, which is often, I mean, that's, we know that's of course right-wing, ex- extremist, fascist kind of uh, ideology, but why it resonates. So we really need to, to, to see the, the local context for coming to value judgments. A good historian always. It's all about the local context. It is. <laughs> Dr. Brunbrath, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a delightful conversation. If there's any, any work you've got coming up, anything that we, our listeners can keep a lookout for? 
if your listeners have an, uh, have an interest in shipbuilding, they can uh, uh, look out for the English translation of our shipyard book, which should come out with University of Toronto Press. So I can, you, I can advertise. Does that have a title? I mean, the, our, our German title was, we used a lot of maritime, maritime metaphors. So it was in the storms of transformation. I don't know what the English title will be. Great. Well, we can keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, cool. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Yes, I also, uh, I had uh, Google Translate it to, to the title because I don't speak German. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, it is, it's basically the same words. In-